Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the privilege uh, to hear your word read, uh, to hear your word preached, and we pray today as we come, Lord, that you would guard us from distractions. We pray, Lord, that we might be able to focus clearly upon the word that you have to say, not, not just the words that, that I speak that come out of my mouth, but Lord, we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts to be able to hear the word clearly as, as you have given it in your word. And Father, for you to do such a work in us that we would walk away from here and that that word would not just be quickly snatched away, that we wouldn't just forget about it, Lord, but we pray instead that that word would take root in our hearts and that we would be doers this week of the very word that we hear preached today. And we ask these things, God, not only for the good of your church, and, but for the glory of your name. We thank you and pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, up till this point, a time in the, the letter of James, he's been explaining to his congregation what true faith looks like. You know, and that's where we get the, the title of our series, James, a, a Living Faith. And it's important that as we consider what he has to say, that, that we think about our own lives and the faith that we have. And it, I'm not saying that you do or you do not have faith. You can look at James and, and that's a clear sort of indicator. But sometimes our faith can be weak. Sometimes our faith can be strong. And it's good that we give ourselves and listen to these things to hear and to pray that the Lord might strengthen our faith and that we might mature in it as well. Because as we've seen already in chapter 1, that real living faith to which believers have been born through the word of truth, as we saw in verse 18, is a faith that both hears what God says and also does uh, what God says with a willing heart. And, and it exists in a practical service to other people, as we see in verses 26 and 27, but also in walking in holiness before the Lord as well. And it really is understood by um, the fact that it meets trials and temptations head on. You know, that such a faith, a, a, a true living faith, sees them as the test of perseverance designed to produce spiritual maturity and growth and uh, goes on to gain the victory and dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but now, James, uh, by showing that the reality of the Christian faith will evidence itself clearly in our practical behavior in the normal course of life, so we come to know what we truly believe by observing what's in our lives. And, and so James says, well, let's, let's, look, let's look at your lives. Let's see what it is that you truly believe. And so in chapter 2, verse 1 Really, through the end of the book, James gives us sort of special case studies, in, in essence, of faith in action. What it looks like in our lives or, or maybe situations in our lives where we are not exhibiting faith and we're walking in the opposite. And so we, we come to James and as he said at the end of chapter uh, 1, verses 26 and 27, that true religion or genuine faith is compassion for the poor, those who are in need. It's, uh, it's, our heart has been changed, and so our speech has been changed and seasoned with grace. 
And also, it is a life that is uh, uh, unstained by the world. And so as we come to chapter 2, and as we've already read, he wants us to see that favoritism or, or partiality, and I'm going to use those words interchangeably, okay? So, so stay with me. But favoritism or partiality actually violates all three of these aspects of true religion or a living faith. And so James commands believers in James 2 verse 1, he says, my brothers, okay, you see that pastor's heart there? He doesn't come to them blasting them, but he comes to them and he says, brothers, show no partiality. Or maybe a better way to translate it, that is to say, stop showing partiality. He knew that it existed in the church and he wanted them to stop that. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, that word translated partiality, or as we said, maybe favoritism, literally means to receive a face. Now, that doesn't help us in our culture. Well, what do you mean receive a face? You know, basically what he's saying is, is that we should not prefer one person over another because of their appearance. We should not prefer one person over another because of their appearance. And it could be the appearance of their affluence. And that's what we see here in this chapter, you know, where he talks about, you know, the church is gathering in the synagogue. It actually says, for a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. That's the, the Greek word for synagogue. So he comes in and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here at my feet. Have you then not made distinctions among yourselves? So he shows an example. Now, whether that's a real example or made up or not, I don't know. But he does give us that example. But I, I know for us, favoritism may be in terms of poverty and and affluence. It may be we may judge people based on their clothing or their physical appearance or or maybe the family that they come from or or their race or it could be achievements, even their vocation. You know, someone who has a high paying job, we show more respect than somebody who has a lower paying, maybe a, a more blue collar worker type of job. And we might view them differently or their education or maybe even their popularity or maybe for us as Reformed folks, maybe it's their theology. You know, maybe we, we hear that someone is of a, a theology that we might view as less mature and we might then view that person as a certain way. You know, there are so many different ways that favoritism is shown. And I know this is maybe sort of a silly illustration, but I thought, boy, it really drives the point home. It's not even only with people as well. You know, it's interesting to see how much our perception is changed by externals, by outward appearance. And that was sort of driven home to me years ago. I watched this documentary and it was on education and it was talking about how to get a better grade in school. And so uh, the people doing this documentary, this research, uh, decided to submit a, a term paper to a professor and just do it like, you know, hand write it out. No cover page, no nothing. You know, it was done okay, but it wasn't done greatly. They got the paper back and they got a C. Then they took the very same paper and typed it up, put this great cover page on it. You know, this paper looked awesome, and they got an A on it. 
you know, because of that perception. We are just sort of wired, are we not, to constantly be making judgments about other people based upon their outward appearance. And James says, stop it. He said, stop it. Don't show favoritism. And, and the reason why he says that is because faith and favoritism are incompatible. They, they really are sort of opposite things. Now, let me make a clarification about uh, favoritism because, before I go on, lest we become confused. It's not wrong to make appropriate distinctions between people, okay? And, and let me give you an example of what I mean by that. It might help you to understand. Let's say, for example, to, to offer uh, the last remaining seat to an elderly person and, and, and then to invite a younger person who's arriving at the same time to our worship service as the elderly person to go sit somewhere else or stand somewhere else is not wrong. Because the elderly command respect, and the Bible talks about showing that respect to those who are elderly. And so we might treat people differently, but that's not just based upon appearance. That's based upon what God has revealed to us in his word. And so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where we see someone and we make a snap judgment about who they are, don't even know them, based upon their outward appearance. But favoritism makes those distinctions truly based upon appearance. So James now in these first seven verses, and, and he even continues this in verses 8 through 13, but uh, I'm not going to have time to, to look at those today. But just looking at the first seven verses, he gives us several reasons why showing favoritism is not consistent or it's incompatible with the Christian faith. First of all, it... it uh, it is contrary to the nature of God. It's contrary to the nature of God. Look at verse 1. Well, before we get to verse 1, you may be thinking, as you think about God's character and, and other scriptures that you're familiar with, and you think about favoritism, there may be certain verses that come to mind. Maybe uh, Colossians 3.25 that says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality, you know, speaking of, of God. Or Ephesians 6, 9, Masters, do the same to them and, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. There's no favoritism with God. Or, I like Romans 2, 3, Paul just gets right to the point, for God shows no partiality. Bottom line, that's it. You know, God doesn't show favoritism. You know, so you might be thinking about passages like that, but I want us to look at verse 1, too, as well, because there's something sort of unusual about this, and that is that the name of Jesus is mentioned. Now, that might sound crazy for a sermon. What do you mean mentioning Jesus is an unusual thing? But if you look at the book of James, he really doesn't mention Jesus' name, but just a couple of times. One, as he opens the letter, James, a servant, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he also mentioned it in this passage as well. So that ought to catch our attention. Why is it that he mentions Christ at this point? And he, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Now, that phrase, the Lord of glory, can be translated a whole lot of different ways. As a matter of fact, I'm totally convinced that for the number of commentators there are on this passage, there's that many different opinions as to what that phrase means. And, And there's one sense, I think, that it doesn't really matter how we translate uh, this verse, what matters is, is that James deliberately introduces the idea of the glory of Jesus because he wants us to, to uh, wonder why he, he does so. And if you think about God's glory, and you can turn back to Exodus 33 if you want to, but in Exodus 33:18 we find Moses, he's sort of downcast you know, as he's been leading the Israelites and, and sort of anxious about the future and the Lord insisting that he lead this people. And, and I could only imagine, you know, as a, as a pastor of a congregation of 30 or 40 people, and as much as I love you and I want to shepherd you, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to do. And I can't imagine being a, a leader of uh, a million or two people. You know, and seeking to shepherd them, and especially the Israelites who were sort of stiff-necked people. But here Moses is, is God is calling to lead it, and, and he sort of is in need of encouragement and uplifting. And so he begs the Lord in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, please show me your glory. And in reply, the Lord says in verse 19, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. And that's exactly what God does in uh, chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. And God says, in essence, uh, you will certainly see my glory because I will come to you myself and reveal my essential goodness and show you my very nature. So when he say, I'll show you my name, he's not just saying who I am, but he's talking about his attributes, his, his character as well. And so glory, as Well, one commentator put it, and I think aptly so. He says, glory then is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord in all his goodness and in the fullness of his revealed character. So we see God for who he is. And and when we come back to James and we look at James and he talks about Jesus, you know, um, the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, He's really saying that Jesus is God's glory, that God himself comes among us in all his goodness and in all the full revelation of his presence, that Jesus is revealing to us who the Father is. And you've heard Jesus say that, you know, when they said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what do we see through Christ about the nature of our God? Well, we see through Christ that the nature of God is such that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor in 2 Corinthians 8 9. And because when we were wretched and uh, pitiable and poor and blind and naked, you know, in Revelation 3 17 and 18, uh, he counsels us to buy gold from him that we might be rich, white garments for our nakedness and salve for our eyes that we might see. We see that God calls us to come to him and to receive him. And what is Christ do, but he comes down to where we are. He takes our nature upon him, Hebrews 2.14. He takes our sin upon him, 1 Peter 2.24. He takes our curse upon him, Galatians 3.13, and bringing to our blinded minds the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And so we see the nature of our God 
is one who comes to those in need, not rejecting them, not judging them on external appearance, but he comes to them to show his grace. The Lord Jesus Christ never looked at people's outward appearance and assessed their worth by it. Rather, he came freely to purchase a people for his father. To show favoritism is contrary to Jesus' love because it means that we classify people in our minds and make false assumptions about them based on what we see externally. In fact, uh, James says that we set ourselves up as judges towards other people and sort of forgetting what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Remember where Jesus says, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And, and, and James makes that same point in verse 4. He says, have you, uh, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, the idea there is, he's like, look, I'm telling you this illustration. Maybe this actually happened in their, their congregations. And he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the implied answer is, yes, of course we have. You know, we have judged people wrongly. And so there's really a couple of things that are going on there. And in our minds, as, as we do these things, we place ourselves, first of all, in a position to sit in judgment of others, trusting that we can make a true and accurate assessment of them, even though that we can't see their hearts. You know, uh, the Bible says that, that God judges not the outward appearance, but he judges the heart, right? And sometimes we act as if we can do that, but the reality is that we can't. And I, I think about Samuel when he went to anoint uh, David as king, but you know he didn't know that David was the one. He just knew it was his family. And so he came to the oldest and he's like, well, surely this is the king. Look at this guy. He's a stud. You know, he's tall, he's strong, he looks smart, he's handsome. Surely he's the king. And the Lord's like, nope. So he goes to the next one, you know, and the next, and the next, and finally he runs out of sons. And he goes, you got any more? He said, well, yeah, actually, we got the youngest. He's out in the field. And so he said, bring him to me. And, and uh, he ends up being, David ends up being anointed king because the Lord saw the heart. He judges based on the heart. And yet, so oftentimes, we act as if we can do that, which we can't. But I think the other thing that happens when we find ourselves uh, making these judgments wrongly about people based upon their appearance is that we can become enamored by the glory of man as opposed to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that we're, we fear men more than God. That is, if a rich person walks into our, our sanctuary and he sits and we think, wow, you know, you know, if this person goes to our church, well, then there goes all of our financial problems. You know, they can, they can take care of us for, for years to come. I mean, just with their chump change, that will be more than enough. We need to really, you know, uh, pay attention to this person and we can just sort of, you know, uh, brag and just go on and on about that person. And in doing so, we really are giving them glory. Even though God says that he will not share his glory with another, yet we give it to those that we admire based upon external standards. So James tells us to be careful that we not show uh, favoritism because 
It's contrary. It contradicts the nature of God. But also in verses 5 through 7, we see that it contradicts the nature of our salvation that we have received as well. And these two obviously go close together, the character of God and the salvation, the the nature of the salvation he gives to us. We see beginning in verse 5 that favoritism contradicts the grace of God. Uh, Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Now, in, in speaking of those that, that James is making reference to, he's talking not about those who are spiritually poor, you know, like Matthew does in Matthew 5, 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's talking about the Beatitudes. He said that blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. He's talking about those who are spiritually bankrupt or spiritually in poverty. But James says, he says, those who are poor in the world, he's talking about those who are actually financially poor. It's a poverty as the world understands poverty, like we see in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And we know from Scripture that God, you know, uh, chooses not only the poor, but he also chooses the rich. So he's not saying here just because you're poor or you're under a certain, you know, in a certain tax bracket or you make a certain amount of money, you're just guaranteed that that I'm going to choose you as my child. He doesn't say that. We know that there are many who come to faith in Jesus Christ uh, who are rich, Abraham, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, Levi the tax collector, Zacchaeus. There's, there's different examples in the scripture of those that, that are well off. And, and, and also James is careful to clarify that he, he, those who are poor in the world are to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So he's talking about those who are poor and also who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, while he's not making a blanket statement about your financial status equaling your spiritual well-being or otherwise, at the same time, the prevalence of the Lord's concern is shown for those who are towards the bottom of the world's heap, is it not? I mean, is it not very common for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to those who are needy, those who are in want, not those who are self-sufficient and those who... Uh, feel like they can provide for themselves. I mean, think about even in Egypt, as the Lord brings his people out, what nation does he choose to make into his people and to make into a great nation? It is a nation of slaves. It is the people who are in bondage. And this act of God's deliverance of his people was not prompted by their misery as such, but by the Lord's heart of love for them. I mean, think about Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is, you know, God is talking to his people. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the Lord has set his heart on them because, you know, Israel had a tendency to get pride and proud and think, you know, the Lord really, we must be something because God has set his affections on us. And he says, no, 
I set my affections on you because I love you, because I chose to love you and uh, keeping my covenant promises. And then we read that in taking the initiative to save Israel, the Lord made a name for himself, as he says in 2 Samuel 7.23, which means he revealed what he was really like, what the Lord is like. And, and we see that in other places in Scripture too. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul... And talking about the church at, at Corinth, says this. He goes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were, were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know? He said, Look around, guys. You know, how many really, really, really important people are there here? How many really, really, really wise people are? How many people are there in our midst that. People would like, if you walked into the church, they would change everything to accommodate you. That, that they wanted to be around you. He goes, not really many of you. And then he goes on, he says in verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so we see here that sense of, that sense of humility. Uh, here again, like I said, that doesn't mean that the gospel only comes to those that are financially poor. But if you look in Scripture at those that are needy and weak and those that are outcasts, it seems that God sets his affections upon those people more than he does upon those that are rich. And I just say that to say that the, that is the character of our God and that is the nature of the salvation that we receive. It is by grace. Because if, if we, if we uh, thought that we somehow earned that, then like the Israelites, we might be tempted to boast. But he, he calls us to that sense of humility. And then he says, turn around, uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial, that is done, show favoritism, and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see, there is that sense in which as we receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a humility that is to occur for us to realize that we do not deserve it. And so let's just say a homeless man comes into our church as we truly understand the nature of the salvation that we received, there would be no sense of, of thought of superiority over that person if we truly understood how destitute we were and how it was only because of the character of our God that he so chose to set his love upon us. And brothers and sisters, that gives us freedom 
from favoritism and partiality and to look down our nose upon others. And it gives us the freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ to roll up our sleeves and to hug such a person or to, to, to talk to such a person or to spend time with them because we have been set free in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then second, I want us to see in terms of, of our salvation that um, it not only contradicts God's grace, but also his kingdom as well. Uh, as you look at verse 5, it says uh, that God has chosen those who are poor in the world, you know, um, and to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those he is loved. It's not just that God chose us, but that he has blessed us. He has changed our status. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer outside the family. We've been adopted. We've received the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, in God's kingdom, everything is turned upside down. Those that deserve nothing get everything. And not because of themselves or because they're so great, but because God has, has blessed us so greatly. And so it's interesting as you, as you look at this passage to see that those who were rejected by the world in so many ways are now seen as cherished in the, the sight of God. That those who were despised and, and, and virtually bankrupt now are blessed, not because they have money in a vault, but because of the blessings that they have in a new life in Jesus Christ. And, and it just sort of reminds me of the Israelites when they went into the promised land for the first time. And God sent them in and he says, I'm going to give you this wonderful land. I'm going to give you this wonderful land. You know, it's, it's filled with fruit and milk and honey. It's just wonderful. And the Israelites went in there. When they saw the giants, they, they were afraid and they, they obviously then doubted the Lord. But God's blessing was great. And he gave them a taste of what that land was like. And it's like that for the Christian as well. Now we have received the promised Holy Spirit, which is a seal of, of our salvation. It is a taste of what we have to come. Uh, we already, Christ is working in our hearts. What did we, we say a couple weeks ago? As King, Christ subdues us to himself. He's ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering us and all of our enemies. And he is already accomplishing that. And we look forward to the day when that is a full reality as we spend time in, in heaven. And so, but James says, so brothers, look at this. You know, look at God's character. Look at the salvation that he has given to you. And he even goes on and he talks about how those who are wicked dishonor the name that we have been given. You know, I think about when uh, men and women get married, what does the lady do? She changes her name, right? Why? Because to show that intimacy that she has with her husband, that the two become one, right? And, and we have now taken on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we are his and, and we have received such blessing. And so why would we as the church show favoritism towards those that, that uh, we are encountered with? And, and even when we're tempted to do so, he, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, 
But, but James does mention this. He said, you know, why would you show favoritism to the rich? They're the ones that are dragging you into court. They're the ones that are exploiting you, probably not giving them the pay that they deserve for the work that they've done. Or they're trying to steal their land or whatever. We don't know exactly what the circumstances are. But they're like, you are like, you know, smoozing up to the guys that are treating you terribly. And yet you have received this great salvation from the Lord. And so, you know, as we, as we come to him, if we belong to the kingdom of God, it, it involves honoring those that we might otherwise shy away from if we show favoritism. Um, I think about the autobiography of Gandhi. And, and uh, I read a, a, a clip or whatever of, of how he had actually considered uh, the Christian faith at, at one time. Now, you know, his motive, I don't know, well, I guess you could maybe cast doubt upon that, but he believed that the teachings of Jesus could find a solution for the, the caste system. And so he decided uh, when he was a student that he would go to a church and he would talk to a minister about what it meant to become a Christian. But when he came into the sanctuary of the church, it was a little bit like what we read here in James. The usher came to him and he said uh, to him, he said, uh, you need to go worship with your own people. Is what the usher told Gandhi when he walked into the church. And Gandhi said, well, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And so he did. You know, and I just, I just think the more we think about this illustration in verses 2 and 3, the more it gives really practical focus to a constant problem, oftentimes in Christian living. You know, imagine being on duty at the church door and all of a sudden you're faced with the dilemma of you have somebody who comes in who's well-dressed and then right behind them comes in a person who is homeless, they're smelly, they stink. In your mind you're thinking, okay, they're coming to a church because why? They want money, right? They want something from us. And so often in just that way, oftentimes our faith is tested to see what we truly believe, to see if our faith, if we really understand what we have received from Christ. And James offers us three pointers uh, to correct our reactions in these situations. First of all, he helps us to think of Jesus as the true glory of the Father, that he came down to the poorest, identifying himself with the least and the worst. Uh, that we might have salvation. Second, James urges us to think of the mind of Christ and the, the choice that God made to choose us, not because of what we've done, but because he has set his affections upon us. And then he reminds us to think of our new position in Christ, that we who were the least have received and have been enriched in our faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in that way, brothers and sisters, that we will have that family likeness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that has been shown to us to show us his character and to show us the salvation that we receive, that we might go and, and be a witness to, to who he is. Well, let's take just a moment to bow our heads and to meditate upon the word that was preached today. Lord, we thank you so much. 
as we come today to this passage, that it might be the word of God, which is a mirror held up before our souls. God, to show us even the very motives and the attitudes of our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that your salvation is complete, that you have given us everything that we need. And Lord, I, I pray as we think today about how we might be prone, Lord, to, to show favoritism rather than the faith that you have given to us and the expression of that in our relationship with other people. I pray, Lord, that you might open our eyes to see those ways where, God, we have dishonored your name, that we have acted contrary to the salvation, the free gift that we have received. And pray, O Lord, that we might bear the family resemblance to what you have done for us. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be a church that, Lord, could be there with people who are smelly and difficult and challenging. Lord, that we would not be put off But I pray that the love of Jesus Christ would compel us to share the hope that we have, the only hope that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.